I read uh, recently somewhere that human societies down through the centuries have tended to be fanatically opposed either to adultery or to divorce, but rarely to both. So then, for example, in Victorian and Edwardian England, people were extremely hostile with respect to divorce. Divorce was exceedingly rare. But adultery, uh, married men having lovers or mistresses or whatever, that, that was assumed to be somewhat pretty much a simple fact of life. Until recently, until very recently, for example, it was unthinkable that a member of the British royal family could ever marry a divorced person. And yet, by the same token, until very recently, a blind eye was routinely turned to adulterous royal affairs. So perhaps uh, we have uh, flipped recently in what might loosely be called Western culture. Divorce is now commonplace, and perhaps even the norm in uh, some areas. But adultery or cheating is routinely labeled as unacceptable with a capital UN in our popular culture. The point would seem to be that in one way or another, human beings have big problems with fidelity, with sexual faithfulness in relationships. Well, today, Jesus gives us a divine perspective uh, of these things, speaking on adultery, divorce, remarriage, oaths, and vows. For today, we continue uh, this series of sermons, a series in which we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I will begin by pointing out uh, that um, just today, I do not wish to say a very great deal about uh, divorce. Um, divorce and remarriage in the Bible is a complex area of doctrine, and I've preached on that topic recently. I'm happy to provide anyone with my notes uh, if you'd like to know more, um, just to... to um, uh, I guess, actually, to begin in the same place that you began, Lydia, in verse uh, 31, um, uh, to, to quote uh, uh, there, um, Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And you'll see in your pew Bible that that phrase is in quotation marks. Um, and it looks as though Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Indeed, there is a footnote that takes you to Deuteronomy 24.1 in your NIV Pew Bible, suggesting that that is the text that Jesus is quoting. However, that would be very unfortunate if anyone thought that because Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament. He is not quoting Moses, the author of Deuteronomy. Rather, the phrase there, it is a quote to be sure, but Jesus is not quoting Moses. No, the phrase cannot be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Um, rather, if you look to Deuteronomy 24, you'll find a vaguely similar-sounding phrase, but not one which commands the giving of certificates, but rather one which prohibits the passing of women, certificate or no, backwards and forwards between men for their pleasure and at their whim. No, Jesus is not opposing Moses, but he Rather, he is quoting the Pharisees, whose teaching it is that he opposes, and who think they are quoting Moses when they're not. You see, the Pharisees have seen that Moses assumes that divorce will happen, and they have taken that as permission for divorce to happen. 
They think they're quoting Moses when they're not. Um, Only, say the Pharisees, just make sure you write out a certificate. Well, Jesus calls that for what it is. Serial monogamy, the divorcing of one wife in order to marry somebody else, serial monogamy is adultery. Jewish society in Jesus' day was very condemning of adultery, yet extremely liberal towards divorce, perhaps like our culture today. In fact, Jesus now equates the two things. Divorcing wife number three in order to marry wife number four is just serial adultery. That is not to categorically shut the door on divorce or on remarriage in all instances except where adultery has already happened. To do that would be to replace the liberal legalism of the Pharisees with a conservative legalism in the name of Jesus. Legalism actually doesn't cut the mustard here. Being loving and faithful does. Yes, indeed. Uh, Sadly, uh, sometimes marriages do collapse for complex and distressing reasons. What Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is something that we are also talking about in our culture today, the shameful misuse of women by men who were, socially speaking, in a position of power over them. Um, You see, at our time, in our culture, the behavior of men, especially the behavior of rich and powerful men like Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Roger Ehlers, uh, etc., the behavior of such men towards women is under close scrutiny in our culture. And with that in mind, let's consider Christ's words in verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A literal translation might be like this. But I say to you that everyone, the one looking at a woman with a view to desiring her, Already he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, uh, what, what we can understand it is, is that it is not the experience of attraction per se that Jesus is condemning, but rather the making of plans in response to it. This was why Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look, not to gaze, not to stare, literally, at the virgin, that is to say, the young unmarried woman. He didn't stare because he knew that if he did, then sooner or later he'd start making plans. He'd turn his feet to her door, arrive unannounced on some pretext. And Job was a rich and powerful man. By and large, as a rich and powerful man, in fact, the the richest, most powerful man in his district, his society would have pretty much allowed him whatever it was that he wanted. Well, uh, as we consider this text today, uh, we see um, uh, that it is assumed that most men have a libido, and it is assumed that most men find it very difficult to ignore. The material point is this. Speaking to the men, men! We are fools if we follow our eyes rather than following Jesus. We must learn to control our eyes, and not just our eyes, but also our thoughts. We must take responsibility for what we do with our eyes, and we must take responsibility before God for everything that happens between our ears, our thought life. 
It is normal and healthy to experience attraction to others. Sexual attraction, romantic attraction, crushes, major or minor, are um, a routine part of everyday life for many people, probably for most people, married or single. But how we respond is critical. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Uh, to, to return to our text and to return uh, to the concept, the thought, the idea of lust for a moment. What is lust? Well, perhaps the definition of lust might be that lust is a distortion of the sexual attraction uh, that we experience by which we desire sexual gratification by way of using somebody essentially as an object, as a consumer item. And that is depersonalizing. Um, not only shouldn't we do that, but we should make sure we don't even fantasize about that. And Paul's approach to this is personalize. Um, that older man is not a fool or an idiot. He is your father. Uh, that younger man is not a threat or a nuisance. He is your brother. That older woman is not a nag or a bother. She is your mother. And that younger woman is not a hottie or a babe. She's your sister. As disciples of Christ, we'll find it hard to objectify people if we remember to personalize them. Well, um, in conversation recently with uh, some women about these verses and what, what they hear, I, I, think, I think I've learned from them this. Uh, firstly... Um, some people will be tempted towards sexual fantasy in response to the attractiveness of others. Some other people will be tempted towards romantic uh, fantasy in response to the attractiveness of others. Um, the romantic fantasy is perhaps appears to be perhaps more wholesome at first glance, but on closer examination, it's the romantic fantasy can be just another form of objectification. Oh, this person is the person of my dreams. This person is the solution to all my problems. The object that meets my needs, my emotional rather than sexual needs, but still it's all about me. And uh, this is noteworthy. I didn't see this. Um, uh, um, a, a woman did. Um, that Jesus in his text, doesn't make any mention at all about how women should dress. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, although plenty of commentators, uh, all of them male uh, on my bookshelf, uh, but plenty of commentators feel the need to bring balance to the text by saying, and young women, don't go dressing so alluringly. But Jesus makes no comment at all about how women should dress. In fact, if he had, it would have completely undercut his argument. Men, no, his point is men must take responsibility for acting responsibly, faithfully, irrespective of what women wear. And indeed, for me, after reading The Bookseller of Kabul by um, uh, Asne, Asne Schneiderstedt, is that about right? I don't know. 
how to pronounce her name, but after reading the bookseller of Kabul, I realized that men look lustfully at women, even in those cultures where women are dressed in garments that cover them entirely from head to foot with only a thin slot to look out of. Even then, men can tell what's underneath. And those are the cultures, sadly, those are the cultures um, where women are dressed as such, that they are amongst the world's worst when it comes to rates of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and the mistreatment of women. It isn't about how women dress. It's about men taking responsibility for their eyes and for their thoughts. The phrase, um, he has committed adultery with her in his heart already, also requires some comment. On the one hand, the one looking at a woman with a view to desiring her, insofar as he is making plans in his preparedness to sin, in his entertainment of, of that as an idea, he has already sinned. And all sin is equally sinful. All sin is a rejection of God's thought in favor of the thoughts of Satan. On the other hand, not all sin is equally evil. Obviously, the actual act of adultery is a devastating offense, one that causes enormous destruction and hurt. And therefore, it is obviously far worse to actually do it than to simply find yourself thinking about it. All sin is equally sinful. All sin is not equally evil. And Jesus tells us what's really at stake um, what sin really is about, because between the section on adultery and a divorce, we get this, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to, be, to go into hell. And um, without question, Jesus taught that living human beings live with the possibility of eternal torment as an eternal future, an everlasting punishment in the fires of hell. They, all human, living human beings live with that as a future possibility if uh, we do not get sin under control. And given that, any sacrifice in the world at all necessary in order to get sin under control is worth it. And that is the plain general meaning of these verses. But how are we to apply these words specifically? Well, um, in the last 2,000 years, we, the church, have given this a lot of thought. And one answer is to apply them literally. Uh, there are various stories from the period of the early church of various people attempting to apply these verses literally and then regretting it, finding that in the cutting off of their hands or tongues or various other body parts, it actually made no difference whatsoever to them being sinful human beings because the hand actually wasn't the source of the sin. Um, cutting off body parts does not help in the fight for a pure heart. And the early church banned the cutting off of anything at the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., um, others have interpreted Christ's words here as allegorical, metaphorical. In other words, Jesus is referring to the whole church. The church should act swiftly to excommunicate adulterous members of the church. Well, that may or may not be right, but it isn't what Jesus is saying here. 
And one of the difficulties in understanding what Jesus is saying is understanding the relationship between the, the right eye and the right hand as parts of the body to the lust and adultery spoken of just beforehand or the divorce and adultery spoken of immediately afterwards. Oh, yes, okay. Or we can trace a link perhaps between the eye and lustful thoughts, but what about the right hand? What's, what's the link? Well, culturally, Jesus would have shared with his audience the understanding of the right eye and the right hand as symbolically perhaps the two most precious gifts God gives us, um, the gift of sight and the gift of work, the ability to make changes in the world, uh, symbolically um, um, uh, symbolized by right eye, right hand. Given that, probably the best way of understanding these words here is as literal but hypothetical. Hypothetically speaking, if your right hand or your right eye, those things most precious to you, were indeed the source of sin, and we know obviously that they aren't, but if they were, then obviously it would make total sense for you to cut them off in order to save yourself from hell. By extension then, yes, basically there is no sacrifice too great if it is going to protect us from gross sin which so easily deceives and entangles and leads us to hell. Um, one obvious application might therefore be this. Um, even if we have to resign from our dream job, that's better than falling into, into an adulterous affair with a workmate towards whom we feel some strong attraction. Yep, ditch the job. Even That's what you need to do. Resign. Well, um, Jesus' words on oaths and vows are concerned with faithfulness as well and with another body part as well, uh, with the tongue, faithfulness uh, in speech. In, in the ancient world, uh, legal contracts were generally made by word of mouth. You kept your word. But of course, we all need to make various agreements or decisions or promises all of the time, and we all need ways of registering when and where an agreement really is considered to be especially binding and important. For example, if I was to verbally agree to picking up takeaway Thai food on the way home from work, that is, without question, a very important undertaking. However... The contract I signed when I took on this job as pastor, the promises and oaths that I took on the day of my ordination, swearing, for example, canonical obedience to my supervising bishops, and the vows that I made on my wedding day. Perhaps we can see that they are undertakings of an altogether more serious nature. Well, in our society, when an agreement really has to be binding, we might sign a contract and agree that there'll be legal proceedings we face if we break contract. Or we might sign something and have it witnessed. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law likewise had rules for when oaths and vows were to be binding and to what degree they were binding. Here, now, in the Sermon on the Mount, part of Jesus' lesson is simply to show people that the phrases that they routinely used to swear by heaven, to swear by the earth, to swear by their own heads, were actually all forms of blasphemy because none of us have any authority over any of those realms. We can't even make one hair on our head, either black or white. Those, these things belong exclusively to God, 
and come under his sovereignty. To claim sovereignty is blasphemous. That's perhaps less pressing a lesson for us because we no longer use such phrases. What we might hear and take to heart as we consider um, this teaching is perhaps the first clause and the second to last clause. What we'll generally get and hear is, but I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And we go, yeah, that's right. That much I understand. If we are people of integrity, if we are people of our word, we won't need special phrases to indicate when we're really serious about something. If I am a person of integrity, and if I say what I mean and I mean what I say, then my friends and family will trust me indeed to pick up the Thai takeaway food on my way home from work. And having said that I do, I will wholeheartedly and most sincerely endeavor to do so, excepting perchance some unforeseen disaster. And my friends and family will consider now the picking up of the Thai takeaway food to be in safe hands, rather than worrying about the possibility of me just simply saying yes to get them off my back without any real intention of actually forking out the money or inconveniencing myself by stopping and instead turning up empty-handed except for a bunch of excuses. We all know people who actually work that way. But we are not to be such people. Um, we are right to consider that to be Jesus' lesson for us today. We will be people of integrity. We will be people of our word. Failing, sorry, we, will, we will be faithful, doing what we've said we'll do, without need of special phrases to indicate when we're actually serious. But if that is the lesson, and it is the lesson, perhaps some clarifications are necessary. Firstly, Jesus commands here, don't preclude occasionally making vows and promises. From time to time, we do have to make vows or oaths or promises in legal or professional contexts in order to signal before others publicly our willingness to take up certain responsibilities. Jesus is not telling us here that we can't do that. Jesus himself uh, submitted and came under oath at his trial. And God routinely swears and makes promises in the Old Testament. But he is asking us to be careful with our speech, to be people of faithfulness and integrity. Secondly, and similarly, when we simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, we shouldn't then assume that every yes and every no now takes on the form of a vow or an oath. That's not Jesus' intention here either. Paul, for example, said yes to visiting the church in Corinth on his way past to Macedonia, but then he had to go back on his word. Um, circumstances wouldn't allow him to do that. And Paul feared the thought of them um, thinking that he was the kind of flippant, careless person who, who made agreements lightly, saying yes, 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 no, 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 or whatever, just to get them off his back um, without really thinking or caring. But being a person of integrity doesn't mean that we become slaves to our own speech. We should understand that we are limited in our ability to predict the future and to understand the full implications of our decisions. It is conceivable, it is conceivable that having agreed to undertake the most heavy and burdensome task of picking up the Thai takeaway food on my way home from work, it is conceivable that perhaps something of vastly greater importance may require my attention and legitimately preclude me from being able to fulfill my own word. 
people will understand that and extend the necessary grace. So we don't, we don't become slaves to our own word in the same way as before. But something else that perhaps we should think about before we're done here is the final clause, which we often just skip over entirely. And that final clause is this. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Well, uh, let's imagine this scenario. <clears throat> a group of people have dinner in a restaurant. Uh, it's not a Thai restaurant. We're done with that sermon illustration. It's an Italian restaurant to signal this is a whole new sermon illustration. But there's something awful in their experience of the Italian restaurant. I don't know, maybe it was poor service or an argument over the bill, but somebody comes out uh, amongst his friends and um, they say, I swear to God, that's the last time I ever go back to that place. What such a person probably has no idea about is the fact that they've just made a vow to God in the presence of many witnesses, their friends and undoubtedly a certain number also of angels and demons. What such a person probably has no idea about is that if they decide to go back to that restaurant, say, to give it a second chance, another try, Satan is going to jump all over them. I don't know how he'll do that, but he will. Satan is incredibly legalistic. If he has a legal right to prosecute, he'll use it, for that is his name. The Satan means the prosecutor, the accuser. They have condemned themselves, to use James's language. Satan has a stronghold over that person's life by way of a legal agreement they themselves made, and they will suffer for it in one way or another. Actually, um, people do make themselves the slaves of their own language all of the time without even realizing it. Taking oaths, promises, vows, flippantly. And when demons hear this, they're delighted because they know that we are forgetful and limited and lack wisdom and foresight and that there's a very good chance we'll break our own vow or promise, giving them the legal right to punish, to inflict torment. Um, in August of uh, 1992, having been a Christian, me, for about four months, I made a solemn vow to God that I would not again drink alcohol. That was an immature thing to do. If I'd talked the matter over with a mature Christian, I'm quite sure that they would have said to me, look, Stephen, you're free to drink alcohol or not to drink alcohol. Do as you please. But you would do well to avoid making a vow. Look here with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Well, uh, it wasn't long before I had to introduce exception clauses. Uh, drinking alcohol in the context of Holy Communion, that was an exception. Uh, but otherwise, I did more or less keep that vow until August of 2006, some 14 years later, by which time I was in a different place in my life, and my earlier vow had become unnecessary and indeed onerous. And helped by more mature Christian, uh, more mature Christian friends, I, uh, I renounced that vow. I asked Jesus to forgive me. I received his forgiveness for making the vow and for breaking the vow, and I began to drink alcohol again occasionally and in moderation, as in fact in Christ I'm free to do so. I would therefore invite you to consider whether you have made owls, uh, owls, vows, uh, um, 
uh, or, uh, vows or oaths to yourself or others flippantly or foolishly, whether, in fact, you have enslaved yourself unwittingly. People actually do it all the time, and it's spiritually quite dangerous. Oh, I promise you, I will never, ever dance with Mr. Darcy. Oh, I swear to God, I'm never going to America, or whatever it might be. If you have, then, then actually ask God for his forgiveness and return to him uh, um, the courtesy of acknowledging that actually he is sovereign over your life rather than you. Well, the texts that we've considered today are difficult, challenging texts, but they make for a safe world. Uh, these texts make for a world that is safe for children to grow up in. These texts make for a world where it is safe for women to walk around at night by themselves. These texts make for a world that is safe to take employment or a loan or to start a business without others swindling you and going back on their word. These texts make for a safe world, a world that knows and follows Jesus. Let us pray. Uh, dear Jesus, we hear what you have to say, and we believe you. Please write these things in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Please help us to remember them and to obey them. To the glory of God our Father and in your name. Amen.